For more than 12 years, I provided commentary on WCBS News Radio on topics under the banner of simple truths on values, civility, and our common good. This was eventually collected into a book by the same name. Christ Church felt it was this was a useful incursion into the public square concerning things that mattered most emerging from our mission. Not advertising, but commentary about human flourishing. As I wrote in the preference in the preface, as one man, husband, father, friend, citizen, child of God, I want to live with greater attention to the things that upbuild my individual life, relationships, and healthy community. Yet this often seems a lonely enterprise, and I find that I'm easily distracted. After all, I am making my way in the very same cultural context as everyone else. We share the struggle for identifying and then maintaining the values that promote the common good. And this isn't easy, even for those who attempt to practice and advance a particular religious tradition. I know only too well how religious practice can be overwhelmed by cultural tidal forces. Given current conditions in our nation, this focus now seems to me prescient, anticipating an accelerating breakdown of shared values and definitions of the common good. The 2016 presidential election results revealed the biggest gap between the popular vote and the electoral vote since 1876. The journalist E.J. Dion notes that we are having a very difficult time as a country empathizing with each other. One thing that we might take out of this campaign, empathy needs to be complete. There can't be groups toward which we feel obligated to feel empathetic and groups toward which we don't feel obligated to feel empathetic. But then he notes that 56% of Democrats didn't have a close friend or family member who voted for Donald Trump and 52% of Republicans didn't have a close friend or family member who voted for Hillary Clinton, which is a rather startling statistic. You'd probably agree with me that it seems we're increasingly talking to ourselves inside echo chambers. And you'd also likely agree that to a great degree, this is an outcome of encroaching technology. But we seem to be separating geographically as well as the comparative maps of blue and red reveal. It's an odd coupling of increasing individual atomization with tribalist tendencies. Very curious and troubling. Still, today, I marvel at and celebrate our nation's capacity for a peaceful democratic leadership transition. And I pray that our 
new president and administration will courageously and wisely fashion a government for all the people that from the fractious chaos of this season, stability will emerge, protecting and advancing the common good. I pray for those things. I'm thinking that underneath our disagreements, most of us probably want similar things, security, useful work that pays a living wage, equal rights and dignity before the law and one another, clean air and water, easy access to quality health care, things like that. Given these common desires, I, I will seek to be in conversation with those whose opinions and politics differ from mine, admitting limits to my knowledge and wisdom and seeking to love my neighbor. As Paul pointed out to the Corinthians, you heard earlier, their unity would not be found in the competition between various factions and leaders, but in their essential commitment to Christ. Now, we well know from experience that this doesn't necessarily lead to agreement in all matters, but it should hold us accountable to enduring gospel values, emphasizing God's love for all persons, especially those at the margins, the ones Jesus regularly embraced. That is something we should agree on. Because here's the gospel paradox. Jesus was not a political partisan, but he died a political death. And both these ideas need to be held together. Some wanted him to pick up a weapon and lead a political movement to overthrow the government, but that would have diminished, well, really crushed his purpose, which had several layers. Instead of walking a path towards power, he chose a path of humility that kept him in solidarity with the powerless. As we point out during Christmas, his birth in a stable was emblematic of how he would track in life despite his exceptional qualities. And as he began his ministry from the margins, people were drawn to his topsy-turvy yet profoundly insightful teaching. And as we heard in our passage from Matthew, he invited a few of them to follow along more closely, those we call now his disciples, But now here it is very useful to ask what followership actually meant. What did it mean to follow along then? And then, in turn, what does it mean to follow along now? Jesus, you know, was a brilliant educator in the school of experiential learning. He's a prototype. You know, last week we heard him ask those who had come out to see him, he asked them this question, what are you looking for? Which was throwing the onus back on them for their learning. And then responding to their question about where he was headed, he said, well, come and see, come along and see. In other words, come see for yourselves. Don't simply take my word, but observe and discover by doing. And intrigued, some followed along. 
Now, as the story unfolds, these followers, we learn, are both loyal and feckless. And they're a lot like us, really. In fact, that's how we can enter the story. They're loyal on some occasions and feckless on others. Jesus' message was as confounding as it was liberating. He was a Messiah who eschewed political power while simultaneously exerting profound authority. Most confounding of all, no one was excluded from his concern. He was as comfortable addressing the specific needs of a marginalized, desperate individual as he was admonishing huge crowds to prepare for God's way in the world. Now next week, as Matthew continues, we'll read his famous words that open the Sermon on the Mount, the so-called Beatitudes or Blessings. And on a mountainside, crammed with thousands, he says, Do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. These, he says, are the ones who are blessed, which turns the world's grading system completely upside down. He'll go on to say then outrageous things like this. What good is it for you to love your friend? I tell you, love your enemies. And then, rather than storing up riches on earth... We should store them up in heaven. And we should not judge since we are blind to the log in our own eye while we curse the speck in the eye of someone else. And how we are meant to become salt and light for the world. So we learn that his followers are meant to commit to these same values rooted in humility. And then later, and again in Matthew, towards the end of his ministry, we'll, he'll teach that the nations will be judged by how well they care for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, and the imprisoned. That's how the nations will be judged. And as his followers, his followers will take this to heart. And today it shows up in their generosity of dollars and time and energy, as well as their commitment to dismantling systemic roadblocks to human flourishing for everyone. Modeling Jesus' behavior, his followers will confront the powers that favor one group over another. 
and they'll promote the safety and dignity of all persons regardless of external conditions. As the prophet Micah famously admonished, they will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. That's the prophetic tradition out of which Jesus came. Justice, mercy, humility. These have always been, friends, these have always been the hallmarks of faith as modeled and mentored by Jesus, who told his friends to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Stunningly, shortly after this instruction, he was arrested by the state. His subsequent death raised this command high for everyone to see. Looming over the centuries to our present moment. It remains our highest calling and the source of our enduring hope. So on this momentous weekend, I ask that God bless the United States of America and God bless Christ's church as we continue to seek to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.